Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, Christmas, birthdays, we're used to exchanging gifts. For people of faith, life itself is a gift. But have we cultivated the practice of gratitude? We discuss this with our guest, Diana Butler-Bass, author of Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Diana Butler-Bass. She's the author of 10 books about religion, politics, and culture. She's frequently called upon by the media to comment on faith and public life. She holds a Ph.D. in religion from Duke University, and she's taught at the college and graduate levels. In 2016, she was a guest here on Things Not Seen, and we talked about her book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. You can listen to that interview, episode number 1603, on our website. Today, she joins us to discuss her new book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. Diana Butler-Bass, welcome to Things Not Seen. Well, thank you, David. It's good to be here in person. Yeah, it's nice to have you back. And there's a lot that I want to dig into about this book, which I really enjoyed. But first of all, maybe we could talk a little bit about the genesis of this book. How did it come to pass that you moved from talking about spiritual revolutions to talking about gratitude? Well, the last book that I wrote, the one that you just mentioned, Grounded, was an exploration of where God is now. You know, how we understand the nature of God and the location of God. So the driving question there was, where is where is God? And I made a case that God is here with us and that we can experience God most fully through nature and neighbor. I wrote that book. I got to the end of it. And I said to myself, so what? You know, it was just like, okay, well, God is here with us. Now what do we do? And I had wanted for several years to write a book about character, you know, the so what, you know, how do we live? What should that look like? What kinds of virtues and moral frames should we have as people of faith in the world today? That's a project I still might go back to because it's very interesting to me that almost all the books that are written on those subjects are written by white mostly neoconservative men. I've always wondered what it would be like for a woman who is a progressive <laughs> to take up that question, because I think a lot of folks just assume that liberals don't have any virtues <laughs> or, or we don't talk about morals. So that was the book that I was thinking about was the So What book. And 
framing it as a character book. What happened was I talked to my editor, longtime friend, and now he's my agent, actually, about that project. And he said to me, well, what are you thinking? And I said, well... You know, I'm thinking about writing about compassion and empathy and, you know, these different kinds of aspects of character. And I had a list and on the list of things that I presented to him, I had said gratitude. And he stopped when I said gratitude. And he said, you know what, if you wrote a book that had like eight or nine different qualities of character in the book, it would take you about eight or nine years (laughs) to write. He said, why don't you pick one? And he said, frankly, as soon as you said gratitude, I think that's your next book. And I stopped and I I realized that a lot of the personal questions I had about how we live well now were related to gratefulness and giving thanks and learning to live in ways that were past privilege and past entitlement. And the the project just became really personally compelling for me. So that was the very beginning of it. Well, what's fascinating to me is that you've managed to take gratitude and analyze it in, I think, a very useful way. So you, you almost have a, a pie, and each of the four quarters of the pie, it sort of breaks out between the me and the we, and the emotions, which are interior, and the ethics, which are sort of the active parts, the visible parts. And then your book begins to analyze the ways in which we, in terms of our relationships to other people, we begin to combine and recombine these various parts of the pie. Sometimes we're very me-focused and very action-focused, like when we get a gift and we need to give a thank you note, write a thank you note, that's an action. Mm-hmm. Other times we're very sort of group-focused, like when we gather for the Eucharist. But these sorts of ways of analyzing gratefulness, did it ever feel weird to you to be dissecting what is, I guess, assumed to be a very natural act here in our culture? Well, my friends who know me (laughs) know that that's what I do all the time. (laughs) It's like I'll look at something and immediately the wheels start churning. I remember when my daughter was small, she'd always say, you know, can't we just enjoy something without having to talk it to death? (laughs) So so that's that's just the way I was born. You know, as I look at things and I see them and then I want to know why or how and I analyze stuff. With gratitude, it was particularly intriguing because, you know, I had this idea about character and writing a book on thankfulness. But then I saw a puzzle, and it was the puzzle that took me into that analysis. And the puzzle was presented to me in November of 2015. It was like the second week of November, and I saw a story in the Washington Post. It was about gratitude. And it was a single focal question from Pew Research. And the question was, have you in the last week felt strongly grateful? And, you know, it's run up to Thanksgiving. And so they pulled that question out of a larger survey. And they wanted, you know, some press. So they they ran this little one-question survey out. And the Washington Post picked it up as a story. And what was fascinating was... 78% of Americans said they felt strongly grateful in the week before this survey. And I thought that was an astonishingly high number. And then three days later, I got another survey. This one was not in the press. It It came by email from a friend of mine who does this kind of research. It was from Public Religion Research Institute. And 
they had asked a series of questions, not just one question, but a series of questions trying to determine the emotional complexity of the American electorate going into the 2016 election. And what they had discovered is that white Americans were more fearful, angry, anxious, hopeless, and divided. So right there, that was the puzzle. If indeed gratitude is good for us, and almost eight out of 10 Americans say they feel grateful on a regular basis, why doesn't that translate into our communal and political lives? Why do we still feel angry and anxious and hopeless when it comes to living together or trying to create a nation together. So that was the puzzle. And that was the piece that spurred on the analysis. And immediately, the first thing that occurred to me out of the puzzle was that we cherish gratitude in our private lives, but it never makes the leap into our public lives. And that's kind of old-fashioned language, you know, do we still have a private life and can you really make those divisions? But I do think that when it comes to the sort of the personal space of our hearts and our families and friends, we still do feel grateful. But when it comes to how we organize community and how we express our hopes for who we're going to be as a nation, that gratitude has not made that move. We tend to think about gratitude in a very performative way. And I mentioned the thank you note, and you actually start out by talking about the difficulty that you had as a child writing thank you notes. And <laughs> so many people I know have have said, oh my gosh, I'm glad somebody finally admitted that in public. <laughs> but a, a thank you note is a, is a very visible act of, and I'm scare quoting here, gratitude, which may or may not correspond to any kind of interior feeling of gratefulness. It may just instead come out of a sense of duty or something like that. And so you're sort of chasing this question down the rabbit hole of when we say that we're grateful, what do we mean? That's correct. And the answer seems to be that different people in American culture mean different things at different times when they talk about gratitude. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, it is a fair assessment. That's what I discovered in my struggle to write thank you notes. I felt grateful when I was a little kid. As a matter of fact, I think that I really leaned in to a style in the book that I refer to as me and my emotions of gratitude. So if someone gave me a gift, I would be overwhelmed. I'd go outside and I'd see the sunshine. I thought it was the most beautiful thing ever. And I would say thank you to God. This was before, you know, when I was really tiny and I wasn't really thinking about theology or church or any of those kinds of things. So I had this very effusive sense of thanks. But my mother... Her sense of what gratitude was about was about me and what in the book I refer to as ethics. And that is she was very committed to the sort of public action of saying thank you. And so if you got a gift, you wrote a thank you note. If you were invited to a party, you took flowers or something for the host or hostess. And so there was this sense of my mom that when you receive something – you were obligated, and it was always in a good way, to respond. And so those responses to her were what gratitude consisted of. And that's where my mom and I got in trouble. We had this huge tension between my feeling of gratitude as an emotion, as an overwhelming kind of sense of surprise and wonder and awe, and her sense of it as an obligation, a willing obligation, but nevertheless an obligation, So we would fight about it all the time. 
it, it really got very unpleasant where she thought I was kind of an ingrate, I think. And I thought she was too mechanical. And so instead of being able to embrace each other's styles of saying thank you, we were always at a bit of loggerheads about that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's a prolific author and sought-after speaker and preacher. We're talking about her new book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's a prolific author and sought-after speaker and preacher. We're talking about her new book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. You take a moment in your book and you talk about your grandmother and the way in which she relates to the concept of gratitude. You discuss that she lived at a time during the Depression when she was sort of born into a hardscrabble life. She was educated with some nuns, and the nuns took disfavor on the fact that she became pregnant out of wedlock. She had a bitterness about the church because of that. And so you then talk about in the in the arc of her life, she comes back late in life to a point where, because of health reasons, she's being taken care of by relatives, and she really doesn't like that very much. But she also has a moment of religious conversion. She begins to attend, I believe it's a Baptist church, mm-hmm. and she falls in love with this hymn, Amazing Grace. She begins to say things like, grace is everything. And I just want to take a moment and sort of ask, what do you think your grandmother meant when she said, grace is everything? I think that what she realized towards the end of her life is that everything was really a gift. And that was very hard for her to process when she was younger from her own experience of growing up in the Depression, as you said, and also she really did have a hard time because her dreams were dashed when she was very, very young. And she was a very smart and lovely person who always wanted to be a school teacher. And she loved books. And she wound up marrying somebody who was my grandfather, who was a machinist. And he was also very much a book person. He was also an artist. You know, they just never had the life that they would have dreamed of if they had been freed from the financial burdens of living as working class people in the early part of the 20th century. So what I think that they took out of that, both my grandmother and my grandfather, who who died, my grandfather died in 1969, so he was very young, was that you have to do it yourself They did not experience the giftedness of life very often. They experienced the challenge of life. And so when my grandmother got to a certain point, and she and my grandfather did have a bit more money in the 1960s when many Americans became somewhat successful and middle class, every time we tried to give her a gift, she would say, no, don't give me a gift. And so she had this very kind of American individualism where I've gotten to this point, I can take care of myself. I love giving gifts, but I don't want anybody to give me a gift because I don't want to be indebted 
to someone. And so she really thought of gifts as at least directed to her as a kind of indebtedness. And she wanted to work for whatever it was she got. But then, you know, as I write in the book, she did. She, when she got older, she had a lot of health challenges. She wound up living with my family. My mother primarily was taking care of her. She found faith at a much older age. And when she did, I think that all that bitterness and all that sense of of individualism and I need to earn it myself, it all fell away. And, and she became very soft-hearted in her, her latter years. She really loved singing that hymn. And I do think for her is that there was finally this deep and profound recognition that even the things that she thought she had worked for so hard, that even those things were gifts. And instead of looking at the things that she never had, she began looking at the things she did have how she had survived and how she had this wonderful, you know, daughter who loved her so much and that she did have a roof over her head and that she had grandchildren who really cared about her. And it really changed things for her. And she became a a very grateful person because she could recognize that life itself was a gift. And that's the hinge point that you're really playing with in the book, this notion that your grandmother had that if someone gives her something, she's in debt to them. Uh-huh. The, and the, the Latin for that, quid pro quo, the notion that I've done this for you and now you owe me something as a result. Even if it's as simple as I've given you a gift and now you owe me a thank you note. Right. But then you put in contrast to the notion of quid pro quo, the kind of marketplace of giftedness, this notion of pro bono doing it for the pure good of doing it, not with a thought of getting reciprocity. Let's talk for a minute about the the contrast between those two. What is it like to live in a quid pro quo gift mindset? Because it exists, you know, it's there in our culture. How is it different than to live not in a quid pro quo mindset, but in a pro bono mindset? Yeah, the idea of a quid pro quo and gratitude is that anytime you receive something, it's transactional. And so you get something, you have to give something in return. And what we all know is that it very quickly can become quid pro quo, which is the idea that givers give gifts only to get something in return. It's not only quid pro quo. If you don't discharge that obligation, then you're in debt. And so much of our language about gratitude is very negative, where we think of benefactors and then beneficiaries, you know, and who who wants to be on the, the beneficiary end? You know, we all want to be benefactors, but nobody really wants to be the person who is standing there with their hands out and be the beneficiary. This idea of getting caught, and, and even the book, I start the book with a puzzle around this is that the first story I tell is when I received a thank you note for writing a thank you note. And I didn't know what to do because do do you write a thank you note for a thank you note that you've written in thanks? And it's like this could go on forever. And I think that some people when we we think of this, what I call in the book debt and duty gratitude – It's all wrapped up in notions of indebtedness, transaction, when does the cycle end, 
and quid pro quo, giving gifts only to get things in return. So there's this very almost oppressive language of gratitude and obligation. You should be grateful. You know, eat all the food on your plate because there are people who are starving in Africa and you need to be grateful for that food that's on your plate. So that's the kind of really corrupted side of gratitude. And in the book, I try to rescue gratitude. I hope I do rescue. I don't just try. I I rescue gratitude from that transactional vision to being free giving and free response. The idea of pro bono gratitude for the good. And that literally occurred to me when I Googled quid pro quo. I put in uh, opposite of quid pro quo and up popped on Google pro bono. So the opposite of transaction is to do something simply for the good. And that's beautiful. This was where your book sort of struck me like an arrow in the heart because I joke with my wife that I probably was born in the wrong century in the wrong culture. The little that I know of Confucianism, I would have fit into a Confucian culture just fine. Duty and honor in rigidly reinforced social mores, <laughs> those those really speak to me. And so I, I remember one year I asked for a Christmas gift and my parents were like, what do you want? And I said, I want Emily Post's Guide to Etiquette. I want to know how I'm supposed to act with other people. And for me, the rules were very comforting in a way. You do this, and in response, you can expect that someone else is supposed to do this. As I have lived my life not in a textbook of Emily Post's guidelines, but in the real world, I realize that there's all kind of people, and they react to all kinds of, of actions in all kind of different ways. And sometimes the expectation that you have of someone's behavior does not match what they're, quote-unquote, supposed to do. In my younger days, I found this very frustrating. As I've become a father and a husband, I've realized I've had to relax some of my formality. But there are some of us for whom those formal rules of reciprocity can be very comforting. And so to step out from there into, and it really is an act of trust, Mm -hmm. to trust that the world will simply be good in giving, I think in some ways... I have a lot of sympathy, maybe also empathy for your grandmother, because for her, the world had shown itself that it wasn't a trustworthy place. Maybe the formality can help with that. But that really brings me to this insight that you have, where you talk about the fact that we all struggle. The quotation that you have is that struggle is the soil out of which, and hardship is the soil out of which both our negative and our positive reactions arise. And that insight just... It hit me with, first of all, how open that is to what will come and how trusting that is that ultimately what will come is for the good. And first of all, am I hearing that properly? I mean, are you really that optimistic about all this stuff? Oh, gosh. People always accuse me of optimism. (laughs) I actually think that in some ways this book is is the most struggle-filled book that I've ever written. There are several stories that I tell along the way that are deeply vulnerable stories. And I I wanted to do that because I didn't want anyone to think that I was a Pollyanna, that I was just sitting there and saying, you know, be grateful, be grateful, be grateful, and everything will be fine. Because that can begin to sound like really a secular prosperity gospel. If that you just have this magic formula about thankfulness and you just apply it in the right way, well, then good things will come your way. And I don't think that gratitude is like that at all. I think gratitude is a way of seeing and experiencing our going through life and our going through life 
involves good and bad. It involves things that really make us suffer. And it also is a time of great joy. But gratitude, the ability to be able to see gifts and to receive the gifts and to have responses to gifts that are emotional and ethical. I think that that is one of the things that changes us. It actually makes us more mature people who are able to embrace the fullness of, of life as it unfolds. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's a prolific author and sought-after speaker and preacher. We're talking today about her new book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. We'll be back in a moment. Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's a prolific author and sought-after speaker and preacher. We're talking about her new book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. We've been talking a little bit about gratitude both as a social responsibility but also as a power relationship and the way in which power and expectation plays into this. There's a point in your book that was very profound for me, and that is the moment when you begin to analyze what goes on in the manger and the notion of here are Joseph and Mary who are used to being part of an oppressed group of people. They're being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And suddenly into their manger, into the birthplace of their child, these kings come bearing gifts. And it it struck me that it's a weird thing for a person who's been oppressed when the oppressor suddenly becomes strangely benevolent. And I just, (laughs) I want to explore that for a minute. Yeah, for me, part of the fun of this book, it was a struggle book, it it was a hard book to write, but there were these real joyful, amazing moments because I began to see my own religious tradition differently. And this was one of those places. If we're thinking about gratitude and we're thinking about thank you notes and we're thinking about gifts, one of the natural things that comes up for people who have been raised Christian is Christmas, you know, because, hey, we get gifts. I went back and reread those birth narratives of Jesus in the New Testament, and that was really striking to me, too. The idea, in a very real sense, that Mary and Joseph were like my grandparents, who were the working class poor during the Depression, and all of a sudden, these kings arrive 
and they start giving gifts. And I literally wondered, you know, what Joseph must have thought, you know. Oh, my gosh, this is going to be the biggest payback ever. He might have not even wanted the gifts because he knew he would be indebted to these people who brought these extraordinary presents, you know, for his son. And so at the very beginning of the narrative about Jesus, there's a story about gifts and a story that brings up this idea of gifts as indebtedness. But, of course, we know that Joseph can never repay them, and there's no repayment expected on the part of these kings. The first stories in the New Testament are stories about free gifts. And free gifts, that is a really radical concept. And we have tried to get away from free gifts in every way possible, especially in the Christian tradition, even though we are always talking about grace and how grace is free, etc. We're constantly turning God's gifts into quid pro quos and thinking we have to pay God back in some way, shape, or form for these extraordinary gifts. And yet there it is in the first story about Jesus' birth, a story about free gifts and, and no payback. It's a wonderful story. What I love about that is that it's a complete inversion of the atonement theories that I learned in seminary, where God is utterly perfect and you have sinned. And because you've sinned, you are in debt to God and you can never repay God. And so you must spend the rest of your life trying to live a good life. And the only way that Jesus makes sense is because he is the one with the power to repay the debt that can never be repaid. What I love about what you did there is that you completely take that and turn it on its head. It's not that God is expecting ultimate repayment and only Jesus can make that. It's instead that we're being shown that the gift is free. Life is, providence is, God's love is all given, and you don't have to pay it back. You just have to accept it and live it. I know, it's astonishing. <laughs> and it was the central insight of the Protestant Reformation. You know, 500 years ago, Luther and Calvin said exactly this. And for 500 years, we've been ignoring it. It makes me crazy because, you know, sometimes at Easter, you know, you hear these these sermons. Jesus, you know, died on the cross for your sins. And because he suffered so terribly, he gave you this gift of freedom. Well, now you must give your life to God. It's like, oops, we've even turned salvation into a quid pro quo. And that's not what it is. Nope. Nope. God's abundance, God's gifts are free. Your mention of the 500 years ago and the Protestant Reformation draws to mind another moment in the book where you talk about a person who was a good friend of yours and was a good acquaintance of my family, uh, Phyllis Tickle, mm. and the way in which she embodied a type of habitual thankfulness. And so let's talk a little bit because we've interrogated now the notion of gratitude as an action, like writing a thank you note. But here's a woman who would literally stop meetings or withdraw herself from a meeting, an important conversation, to go and pray for a few minutes. And so let's talk about that, that rhythm of gratitude as a, as a daily habit. Well, I think that the comments about gifts and freedom are really important, leading right into this discussion, because it's not a quid pro quo. So there's nothing required of you. Gifts are free. Grace is free. The abundance of this created world is enough for all of us. And it really is. Everything we need is here. Life as a gift is free. It's all free gifts. So is there anything we're supposed to do with that? 
it's not that we're required to give back because how could you ever give back enough for one thing? I mean, that just is, is weird. But what we do have is we should live lives or we can live lives. We don't, we, there's no should involved. It's just we can live lives in a sort of a habitual response to those gifts. And the response to those gifts are things like compassion, sharing of gifts, setting a table of thanks everywhere we go and pulling up chairs for people who are usually excluded from the Thanksgiving table to have a place to sit. The ability to be able to create cultures that celebrate gifts instead of scarcity. And so when Phyllis would pray, it wasn't that she was praying, say, oh, I must pray four times a day because this is my required response of thanksgiving to the God who's given me everything. But instead, what she was doing in her life is she was developing a habit of prayer that enabled her to see gifts more thoroughly and to act with more compassion in the world. And so all this material that we have in psychology right now is pointing in a similar direction about how we become better people. And that is we develop habits of goodness. And one of the ways you develop habits of living, and this would be a habit of appropriate response to gifts, is that you put cues, C-U-E-S, cues, in your life that help you to remember to behave in particular ways. And the appropriate response to gifts and living in a gifted universe is sharing gifts. And so how do we remember to do that? What Phyllis had done was a classical way that religion does it, not only Christianity, but Islam and Buddhism and Judaism as well, is that you do some sort of routine of prayer. And that routine of prayer opens us up to remembering that God is the giver of all gifts, that we say thank you. And then when we walk out of that prayer, we live according to that in the world. And so that is one path of shaping a habitual life of thanksgiving. And there are other paths for that as well. I actually think those thank you notes can be that, you know, they're not just about reciprocal obligations. But when you get a gift, when you say thank you, when you write it down on a piece of paper with your own hand, that's a way of cueing yourself into a habit of getting a gift and saying thanks. Receiving a gift, saying thanks. Walking out of that moment and then giving gifts to other people around you. So that's what I think was happening with Phyllis. And that's one of the things that I've really learned over the last two years writing this book is building into my own life cues that are helping to create a habit of thankfulness and recognizing the beautiful giftedness that is around us all the time. One of the things that struck me as I was reading the book again and again and again is how gratitude, the way that you've analyzed it, is really an awareness of time. I didn't have this blessing. Now I have it. I'm grateful. I had this burden. Now I don't have it. I'm grateful. Mm -hmm. Gratitude is bound up in finitude. It's bound up in the fact that we live in a world where life is not forever. Joy is not forever. We have to come and go. I remember one time a person telling me about Buddhist monks who, when the sun is shining, they would walk around with their palms open. And when the sky is cloudy, they would turn their hands over and and hold their hands as if they were trying to hold the sunlight in. But there's an acknowledgement there physically that this is fleeting and be grateful when it's there. Mm -hmm. And when it's not there, understand that 
you have enough sufficient for the journey to when the joy will be there again. And first of all, in having that thought about your book, have I read you right? I mean, is finitude, is time an important part of all this? Learning to live gratefully helps us to see our past differently. And I just gave a great example of that, where either I lost a job or I was told the story of abuse. When those things happened, they were horrible. They're horrible events. But as you go through life and it become, those become your past, you begin to see that even those really terrible events, there were surprising gifts that were invisible at the time but become visible as you move further into the timeline. So it changes the way you see the past. Gratitude also enables us to live differently now. We can see more widely, I think, when immediately, you know, something might be in front of us that's a challenge. One of the things that I have learned in the last two years is to look towards the edges of my vision, look to the periphery and say, hmm, are there any gifts here or unexpected possibilities, even though right in front of me, what I'm facing is pretty intense. So I've learned to see more widely in the now. And when it comes to the future, there's interesting psychological studies that actually say people who are grateful in their lives here and now are building in capacity for resilience that when future challenges come, that they will be able to face those with more equanimity and with a greater sense of hopefulness. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's a prolific author and sought-after speaker and preacher. We're talking about her new book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's a prolific author and sought-after speaker and preacher. We're talking about her new book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. It's a wonderful thing right now, I, I think, that people are interested in gratitude and to really understand there is a, an energy around this, this idea. And there is an energy around understanding the giftedness of what it means to live right now in Western society rather than in despair. You know, because we sort of institutionalize despair. We say, oh, yeah, uh, everybody's so fearful. Everything horrible is going to happen, you know. And we take in this kind of despair and, and depression, and we've almost made it our political capital. And the truth of the matter is, is that none of the great world religions want us to live like that. Really, this culture of despair that we've developed around the ideas of scarcity, around the idea that there's nothing to be grateful for, that's the predominant voice 
in our culture today. And so if you choose to live otherwise, you really are choosing a path that's against the grain. How has writing this book affected your faith? Well, it's it it turned uh, the Bible inside out for me. I have now understood that this is one of the dominant themes of both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, and I did not know that before two years ago. And the stories of Scripture read so differently to me now that I've encountered the the, the really, truly radical vision of gratitude as a social practice and a way of life. So that's been, that's been really different. And I also think that just, you know, for me personally, it, it's helped me with um, a whole bunch of different issues around my professional life. It certainly has helped me with some concerns in my own family life. You know, it's it's just sort of changed the way I I navigate things. It doesn't mean that stuff is perfect all the time, or that um, you know I'm going through life with a big smile on my face a hundred percent of the time. It's it's not that, but it does mean that when you know something that is challenging presents itself, I've learned that there really are choices to how we respond to those challenges, and that there are certain kinds of choices that I can just you know kind of what I would say follow a a trajectory that has been embedded in my my life, which is generally one of fear and envy. <laughs> you know, that's called sin. And, uh, you know, we're all susceptible to that trajectory. Or I can stand there and I can say, okay, there's there's other choices here. And what, what choices are presented to me to live more fully in alignment with the things that, as a Christian person, that Jesus taught and that Jesus embodied. And gratitude and what does it mean to live a life of thankfulness in the midst of challenge is is one of those choices. I make those now. Not all the time, but I at least see the choices and I I know that there are possibilities beyond fear and envy. At several points in the book, you refer to the author Mary Jo Letty and one of the insights is that gratefulness does not dispel the evil of the world. And I, I hear very much in what you just said that you're not going at this in a Pollyanna way. Your eyes are open. You've experienced hardship. You understand that hardship is there. You're empathetic with hardship when it occurs to other people. It's not about pretending that that's not there. It's about finding a way to have strength for the journey through the hardship to the next the next good point, right? Yeah, it really is. The only book that I absolutely loved that resonated with me really, really deeply in my whole research trajectory for this book was by that author, Mary Jo Letty, a book called Radical Gratitude. And she is a Catholic, Catholic nun. She lives in Canada. It was a very powerful book about gratitude and its social justice. And I, I I loved that book. And there were many, many really good books I read. But that Mary Jo Letty book was the one that took suffering most seriously. And I think also recognized the grittiness of gratitude uh, far more than pretty much any other book that I that I read on this journey. What I liked was that when you quote Mary Jo Letty, there's so, some lessons for practical gratitude that you quote. And it's just very practical things that you can be doing to help to cultivate you know, a life of gratitude. Yeah, one of the places uh, I've always struggled a bit as a writer is ending a book. My agents and editors all for years have always been saying, be practical, be practical. And I looked at this wonderful book by Mary Jo Letty, and she had this list of 10 things. And I literally just say in my book, these are the best 10 things I can think of. She's already written them, and I quote them in their entirety right there and give her 
you know, complete credit for them. And then I do add a couple little things that are, you know, sort of my own practices and my own quirks to the narrative. But her list is pretty extraordinary. As you've gone through this process and now as you're going around and talking about this, what continues to frustrate you? Oh, gosh. Uh, What frustrates me? Probably the fact that, as I've been talking about it, I'm really trying to hold together the personal and the public and how our personal lives and gratitude in our personal lives really should have an impact on our political lives. My husband refers to this book as my political book disguised as a self-help book. And what I've discovered is people want to keep those two things apart. There are people who are very political people and they don't want to have anything to do with self-help. And there are self-help people who really get worried about talking about politics. And I put them together in this one book. And that makes it hard to talk to people about because people want to talk about one part of it and not the other. And I think that they go together. I wish people would understand that our interior lives, the ways in which we help save ourselves and the ways in which we allow grace to save us, that those things really have public and political expression and that it's of a piece. If we don't pay attention to both parts, that we're never going to be the kind of persons we want to be as individuals, and we are certainly never going to be able to get out of the muck that we're in right now politically. What is it that continues to keep you hopeful? I have a 20-year-old daughter. And if you have young adults in your life right now, you know that these, this generation is, is really kind of remarkable. And for all the crises that we're facing and all the ways that the world is changing around us, my daughter, she stands tall and strong and hopeful and, and powerful and in community with her friends. And every time I'm around her, the level of hope just wells up. And I, I trust young adults right now. That gives me great hope. Well, Diana Butler-Bass, I have been blessed by the book. I'm thankful for it. And I'm also thankful that you took time to speak with me and with my listeners today. Oh, it's an honor to be here with you, David. I always enjoy your company. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's the author of 10 books on religion, politics, and culture. She's frequently called upon by the media to comment about faith and public life. She holds a Ph.D. in religion from Duke University, and she's taught at the college and graduate levels. In 2016, she was a guest here on Things Not Seen, and we talked about her book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, a Spiritual Revolution. You can listen to that interview, episode number 1603, on our website. And today we've been discussing her new book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. What a joy. Yay. Thank you. That was fun. You asked really good. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. It's made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash notseenradio. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. the only the second man who's asked me about that section of the book in all these things that I've done. I find that horrifying and fascinating. I do too. Well, I'm, I'm sorry for that too. Yeah, I, I've been kind of surprised by that. There's been a few more women who have gone to that territory, but mm-hmm. you're only a second guy. Hey folks, this is David. I just want to let you know that there's an entire section of my interview with Diana Butler Bass that wasn't able to be fit into the broadcast but is available on our Patreon feed. It's several more minutes of us talking about some pretty sensitive subjects and I'd love for you to hear it. So if you get a chance, go to patreon.com slash notseenradio or go to our website and sign up for the Patreon feed. As always though, no matter how you listen to us, thank you so much for listening.